Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is holiday seafood traditions, both past and present. Before we dive in, I wanted to let listeners know that this show has been pre-recorded and we will not be taking calls at this time. Instead, my colleagues at Maine Sea Grant, Catherine Schmidt, Chris Bartlett, and I ventured out over the last couple weeks to talk with a few people who know about seafood as well as holiday traditions, and we asked them to share a bit about their story. So we'll speak with Maine food historian Sandy Oliver and food writer Nancy Harmon Jenkins. We'll also touch base briefly with Bar Harbor Seafood Market Piquito Provisions and Hugh French of Eastport, Maine about the great sardine and maple leaf drop. So let's start by taking a step back. Humans have long been incorporating food with celebration. The native Wabanaki people observed seasonal changes like the arrival of winter and the solstice and celebrated in their own ways with seasonal harvest. In December, they could have fished for migratory rainbow smelt and tomcod in coastal rivers, and they could have collected shellfish from the shorelines. These seafoods then could have been carried over into the celebratory meals of European colonists. To learn more about seafood customs of the past, Correspondent and Maine Sea Grant science writer Catherine Schmidt headed out to Islesboro to talk with food historian Sandy Oliver. Oliver is the author of Saltwater Foodways, several cookbooks, and writes food columns for the Bangor Daily News, The Working Waterfront, and Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine. Oliver talks with Catherine about her own family holiday food traditions and how our holiday food traditions are steeped in history. I'm Sandy Oliver. I'm a food historian. I live on the on the island of Islesboro in Penobscot Bay. I like cooking from what I have what I grow. So instead of having sweet potatoes, which are from, you know, some southern place, why would you eat sweet potatoes when you can have a perfectly good buttermilk squash all cooked up and then a little brown sugar and some butter added to it? It's just lovely and rich. So I'll have that. Um, I also, at, at Christmas and Thanksgiving, I often make, <clears throat> this is a real throwback, but it's delicious. It's a molded gelatin salad with the one I like to make. Uh, starts out with some kind of red jello and then has added to it. Um, it's mostly stuff, not jello. I mean, there's celery in there, apples, uh, ground up orange. Um, what else I put in there? I forget. It's loaded. Um, oh, cr- cranberries, um, cooked up, just, you know, uh, barely cooked. Yeah. You add those. And so you turn it out and you slice through and there's just all this great stuff studded through and held together. But it's pretty to put it on the table. And I usually make a, I usually make another cranberry um, sauce with some horseradish in it, which I like very much. Um, no seafood. No seafood. No. If I was going to do seafood, it would always be oysters. <laughs> and how? I would just make a nice little oyster soup or stew. And it would just be like three or four oysters simmered in butter and then with cream added and served in little cream soups to start. White oysters. White oysters. Oysters were always the favored, very popular, very, really the favorite shellfish of all time. You find references to seafood in the, or shellfish like oysters going way, way back. It was, people loved oysters. And, and um, the cl- a classic New England 
Thanksgiving dinner in the 19th century um, very often started with oyster soup or oyster stew. Not, not at all unusual to find that. And then you go on to the turkey, etc., etc., etc. If you had a really large crowd, people added other kinds of meat to the table. They might have a, some roasted chickens or chicken pie plus a roasted turk, uh, uh, pork. Um, so you'd have enough food. I mean, we, we'd breed these giant turkeys now that'll feed a multitude, but the um, historically the heir, those heirloom turkeys that we, we see um, are leaner, smaller, uh, and would have been inadequate for, say, a dinner group of 12 to 20. So you needed other stuff on the table. And we're here in Sandy's kitchen. You brought out several cookbooks from your collection. Can you tell me what you have here? Well, let's see. Um, I started out, um, the oldest one I have here is called New England Economical Housekeeper. This was printed in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1845 by uh, the um, S.A. Howland Company. The thing I like about this, this particular cookbook um, is, is that she has a Thanksgiving dinner menu in it which I think is um, really encapsulates what Thanksgiving dinner was in the first half of the 19th century. Well, this is gonna sound really familiar. Well, there'd be some odd little items in here. So for Thanksgiving dinner, we have roast turkey stuffed, a pair of chickens stuffed and boiled with cabbage and a, and a piece of lean pork, a chicken pie, potatoes, turnip sauce, that turnip sauce was merely turnips boiled and served on the side. Squash, onions, gravy and gravy sauce, apple and cranberry sauce, as we're not talking about a mix here, we're talking about two. Um, oyster sauce, brown and white bread, plum and plain pudding with sweet sauce, mince, pumpkin and apple pies, and cheese. Cheese last. Cheese last. Here's the recipe for oyster sauce. Put your oysters into a stew pan, add a little milk and water, and let them boil. Season with a little butter and pepper and salt if necessary. Terribly, terribly simple. And just one of lots and lots of things that were on the table. This Thanksgiving dinner was a was a time for reunion in, in New England, which means also Maine. Um, so people would gather up in a, at a house and there'd be a lot of folks at the at, at table. It would probably take several tables, put them end to end, get everybody, you know, in one room. But you need quite a little turnout of food in order to supply all those folks. And the turkeys of the time, um, what we now call an heirloom turkey, um, was lean, leaner than modern birds. Um, they cook more quickly, by the way. Uh, they were they had more dark meat on them than than um, our modern bird has, and they simply wouldn't have been equal to the task of feeding twelve to twenty people. Um, so you needed other stuff on the table. Hence this uh, chicken pie business. Um, Any lobster? Lobster? Not no lobsters here. No, not on this one. Um, this is a menu that keeps cropping up all through the 19th century and today. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that's really, really familiar in that recipe. No lobster, just that little bit of oyster sauce floating around there on the table somewhere, probably in a nice little tureen. Um, and who knows whether everybody, who all would have had, had some. Oysters though, always popular and very festive. Is there a so, Christmas menu in there? No, no mention of Christmas at all. And that's because Christmas was not widely observed in New England until the last half of the 1800s. Um, and there's some good reasons for that. One, one and the main one was that the people who settled New England were Protestants. In fact, they were escaping um, the Catholic Church um, they were escaping all the ornate features of Catholic worship. 
Um, they felt that Christmas as a holiday was not what, for one thing, warranted by anything in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that says, remember Christ's birth year after year and, and serve plum pudding to go with it. You know, there's nothing, it didn't specify a day. We don't know, they, they said, we don't know when Christ was born, um, what season of the year it was. And, you know, who said December 25th anyway? Well, we know who said December 25th. It was, you know, set by the church in order to just a few notches off of a pagan holiday, just enough to kind of, to supply some kind, you don't want to just take away the pagan holiday without supplying something in its, in its place. And all that just troubled the Puritans. They just didn't like that association. And that habit of not celebrating Christmas really persists. And part of it was that the, there was a lot of uncomfortable memories associated with being a Protestant versus Catholics on those early, in the early days in England. And that, that memory lasts. There were Episcopalians who settled in New England and they would observe Christmas quietly in their own homes. More people celebrated Christmas in the South than in New England. But as New Englanders spread across the country, this non-observance spread along with it. And it lasts well into the 1800s when after Samuel Clemens Moore writes his story about St. Nick sliding down the chimney um, and the obvious commercial advantages of Christmas crop up in the, per in the, in, you know, in the person of gifts, gifts giving, that it becomes it becomes a uh, an attractive Christmas becomes an attractive nuisance, and uh, old New Englanders who tried to get on board with this got uh, had a hard time adjusting to it. That was a wonderful um, entry in uh, Charles Morgan's diary. Charles Morgan <clears throat> lived in Bedford, Massachusetts, and he and he was accustomed to exchanging gifts on New Year's. And as his family, as he grew older, and the younger people in his family became in charge more or less of the holiday, uh, he was sort of nudged towards a Christmas celebration, which he just was uncomfortable with. And he sort of describes it in his, his diary as kind of a bother. You know, doggone it, I have to think about Christmas. You know, what was wrong with good old New Year's as a time to exchange gifts? And now we have this new holiday in here. And, oh, you know, well, the way now the implication for a meal is that if you're going to have a Christmas feast, uh, what are you going to eat? Well, because we didn't have a precedent for observing Christmas from the old days. I mean, it was like, you know, 200 years before that anybody did anything about Christmas back in old England, um, if they celebrated it. Uh, so there wasn't, we didn't have a tradition. We cooked, we, we cooked up the best menu we could possibly think of for Thanksgiving, which is New England's premier festival and was in the, you know, as the 1600s and the 1700s wear on by the early 1800s, we have a pretty, a pretty well established habit of observing Thanksgiving. And would that have been it? Like, would there have been celebrations after Thanksgiving? Or mm -mm. was it Thanksgiving no, and then it was hunker Thanksgiving. down until spring? Yeah, right. Thanksgiving and hunker down. The best menu you could, come, you could come up with was the one you served on Thanksgiving. What do you do for Christmas? Well, you just repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> you just do it again because... Oh, it's the best you had to offer. Out comes the turkey. Out comes, you know, oyster soup, oyster stew to proceed the meal. Yeah. If you've just tuned in, that was food historian Sandy Oliver sharing a bit about the history of Maine Thanksgiving and Christmas meals. You are listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 .9 FM in Bangor and online at WERU.org. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, your host, reminding you that this show has been pre-recorded and we're not taking calls at this time. It seemed only fitting on this Christmas day to share stories about seafood holiday traditions. 
After our Maine Sea Grant science writer Catherine Schmidt talked with Sandy Oliver on Islesboro, she went next to Camden to check in with Nancy Harmon Jenkins. Jenkins writes about food for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and other publications. So we're here with Nancy Harmon Jenkins mm -hmm. in your home, and maybe you can introduce yourself and then tell me a little bit about yourself and your expertise. Well, I can tell you a lot about myself. It depends on how much you want to hear. I was born in Camden many, many years ago, uh, 13th generation maniacs in my family, and um, I really on both sides, my mother's side and my father's side alike, and uh, grew up here and fled at the age of 17, couldn't wait to shake the dust of Maine from my heels, and went away and lived all over the world, and came back here about, hmm, about 20 years ago, returned to my hometown. And in the meantime, I became a fairly well-known food writer, mostly writing about the Mediterranean and Mediterranean cuisine, because I have spent a great deal of time living, working, raising two children in various countries around the Mediterranean. But I've always been interested in Maine too, of course. So how did you come to start writing about food? Well, I was trying to be an archaeological journalist or a journalist in archaeology, and I discovered that there was not a great cry for that sort of thing. So the only other thing I knew anything about was food. And I actually started writing for the Herald Tribune in Paris when I was living in Italy. And they asked me, they started a new uh, features section of the paper, and they asked me if I would be willing to write for it, and I said yes, of course, and leapt in and and had a wonderful time living in Italy and writing about the food there, and then came back to the States, came back to Maine actually for a couple of years, and then uh, went off to Colorado, then got divorced, moved to New York, worked for the New York Times in their food department, food section for uh, a number of years, and wrote steadily while I was there about all sorts of things, obviously things that were going on in New York and things that, uh, um, you know, references to diet and nutrition and health and all that sort of thing. But I also wrote a lot about Maine because I, I knew from growing up here that Maine food was pretty good food and especially seafood because, um, you know, there was a period of time when uh, there was not a great deal of emphasis on farming in Maine. It was considered old-fashioned. It was not um, something that up-and-coming people wanted to do. It's hard to believe that nowadays. And a lot of our food in terms of fruits and vegetables and meats and so forth was brought in from away. And the only thing that we had going for us was our seafood. And we had a terrific resource out there in that. But again, it wasn't always easy. You know, I've always been struck by how conservative Maine people are about their seafood. Very hard to find fresh sardines, for instance. Sea urchins, you know, they're out there harvesting urchins like crazy. Can you find them in any fish market here? No, you can't. You have to really go and beg from the fishermen. And why do you think them. that is? I think nobody ever ate urchins around here. I'll tell you something. When I was growing up, and I'm not sure whether we should do this online or not, but I'll try it. Um, we didn't eat mussels at all. Nobody ate mussels. And I remember my mother, I was uh, probably about 10 or 11 years old, and I was down on the public bathing beach in Camden, what we call Sandy Beach. And my mother came down to pick me up. And she said my mother was very... Um, uh, status conscious, let's put it that way. And she said... There, you see how poor the Baptists are. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, there's the Baptist wife over there on the rocks picking up mussels. That's how poor the Baptists are. And so that, you know, just brought it home to me that we don't eat mussels. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think anybody did. I don't think even very poor people, except unless they were the Baptist's wife, ate mussels. It just, they just weren't considered... Um, they were trash. So what did And the same way that urchins were trash and sardines were trash, yeah. sardines went into a can. They didn't go on a plate, even though they're absolutely delicious and one of the finest fish in the ocean. Um, one thing we did eat and one thing that was being sold in shops around here, I remember when they were in season, was mackerel. 
And mackerel is sometimes hard to find nowadays because so many people turn their noses up at it. And yeah. yet, I think it's one of the greatest fish in the sea. Yeah. So what did you eat growing up? And, we ate, and what did you eat on the We holiday? ate haddock. We ate hake. We ate halibut. Um, we ate mackerel when it was in season. Uh, we ate lobster and clams. And we ate lobster very often for our holiday meals. But I, this, I come from a family that... I don't care for turkey at all, and I think I learned that from my family. I don't think anybody in my family really liked turkey at all. If we didn't have lobster, we would have a roast of pork for Christmas or Thanksgiving or, or whatever, um, and always lobster for summertime holidays, of course. Um, so that was it, basically. Um, it wasn't... Uh, it was a very rich diet in the sense that there was there were many, many ways to prepare all these fishes. And if you look at some of the old, um, some of the old main cookbooks that I've got, you'll see, um, you know, dozens of varieties of ways of preparing a simple haddock. We didn't eat cod because my mother said cod was wormy. Um, my mother grew up in Thomaston and uh, she, she used to say, and I, you know, people talk about a time when lobster was poor people's food, she used to say, poor child. Why, we were so poor when I was growing up. We had nothing to eat all winter long but salt fish and lobster. We never ate salt fish in my family, but she grew up on salt fish. Um, so we had all kinds of things like that, but we didn't have, we had a variety of ways of preparing them, but we didn't have an enormous variety of of fish. And would there be a special way that you would prepare it? Like, would you do something special at Christmas or? Well, uh, uh, the thing that I always loved and she used to make for me when I came home from school. Interestingly, another friend who is my age, uh, her mother also did the same thing. I was amused to discover something they called baked stuffed haddock uh, with a white sauce on it. And it was just wonderful. I loved it. So you've seen the shift, talking about how nobody ate mussels or yeah. urchins, and this shift now. Shift, yes. Another thing, uh, we didn't eat back then because it wasn't available were oysters. Um, and now we have oysters. I love Eventide in Portland because they've got oysters from all up and down the coast and the Maritimes. And it's so wonderful to sit there and eat a plate of a dozen oysters, each one from a different bay, and compare the, the flavors of them. I understand from the scallop people I've been talking with that you can do that with scallops too. The Cobscook scallops taste very different from Penobscot Bay scallops, for instance. Only when raw or when cooked also? I don't know. I, I haven't even tried it because I don't know how I would get Cobscook Bay scallops and Penobscot Bay scallops at the same time to do a taste test. I would do it raw to start with, and then I would cook them. I think, um, I mean, I think that we have got such high-quality seafood here that we're really very, very lucky. I mean, things like monkfish, for instance. I don't recall ever eating monkfish when I was a child. So I think that's a, a new recent introduction. But sometimes, you know, what you didn't eat when you were a child was not a reflection of what other people were eating, but rather of your own parents' prejudices about things. And fortunately, I grew up in a family that really liked fish and seafood. So we ate a lot of it. We had, we had fish every Friday, even though we weren't Catholics. Um, it was just a custom. That was food writer Nancy Harmon Jenkins. This question about how certain foods become a family tradition, or even a community or regional tradition, is a fascinating one. So we asked both Jenkins and food historian Sandy Oliver about the influence of immigrants on food choices in New England. Both said that people were long resistant to branching out from traditional Yankee fare, and that it wasn't until much later in the 20th century that immigrant populations began to influence what people ate on the holidays. Let's hear Oliver first, followed by Jenkins, talk again with Maine Sea Grant science writer Catherine Schmidt about the influence of immigration and religion on food choices, and also about the source of the Christmas Eve custom, the Feast of the Seven Fishes. First, food historian Sandy Oliver being interviewed by Katherine Schmidt. So you mentioned earlier that you don't think that the real sort of seafood winter holiday traditions probably came with immigrant populations yeah, that's who brought right. there. So how did that, was there a fusion that happened or is it still? 
I think it's really, I mean, we today we think it's great fun to eat Thai one day and Mexican another and then, uh, you, you know, maybe something Moroccan and then, um, ooh, let's have, then we'll just have roast chicken and mashed potatoes. You know, we think it's really fun to eat all over the ethnic map. In, past, in the past, that wasn't, it was much less true. People were really very slow to adopt one another's food habits and they had to be kind of nudged into it. French was stylish because French cuisine was famous and sort of familiar to European kind of thing. So adopting French cuisine was one thing, but adopting, you know, Italian or Spanish or any of the others, that, that, that was a little bit out of the ballpark for an awful lot of Yankees. Uh, and eating ethnic foods, um, you, you just didn't, you just wouldn't do it. You know, you just wouldn't do it. There was so much resistance to eating ethnically that if you, if you were to eat like that, you were, you were going to look like the other. And the immigrants who were coming here were Catholic. They were often poor. Uh, they were, you know, stuck in ghettos in urban slots. They didn't trickle out into the countryside very much. They mostly stayed in their enclaves where they could provide for themselves the food that they were accustomed to. Gradually, when things are in the market, things do start working in, into the general population a little bit. But it's generally helped along by some kind of um, technological breakthrough. Like for example, tuna. Tuna was eaten in in Boston, say, in the North End by Italians. There was a tuna, smaller tuna tuna fishery. But it wasn't until it was canned right. that people said, "Oh, this is handy. Oh, this is pretty good. Let's make a tuna tuna salad out of this stuff." Uh, so it it works its way in by the, the by the assistance of some technology, less less than you know, oh, let's like, let's eat like the Italians, you know. Which, just... so when I just did a quick search for holiday and seafood, what comes up most often is this Feast of the Seven Fishes. Oh, yes. Which mm. is interesting because uh, my family's Sicilian, um, and we and my grandparents ended mm. up, they came to Brooklyn, but then ended up in Suffern, New York, and mm -hmm. we never had fish mm. at Christmas. I mean, that right, was not... Right. No. part of any tradition that we had and I that and I'm I'm gonna ask my my mother actually why that is but it must just be because they didn't have access mm -hmm. yeah. to the fish or couldn't afford to get it and so ate um, fish was cheap yeah. in the early days I and mean, it was the food of poor people yeah that was another reason for not eating it very much it was one thing to have say your you know boiled salt cod on on a Saturday night if you're a Yankee because that's once a week. You didn't want to overdo the fish consumption, you see, because fish was not ever considered as, as wholesome a food as meat was. Well, and that's so obvious. It doesn't pack the caloric punch that we're accustomed to with, you know, beef, <laughs> pork. So um, people weren't that interested in eating it. Fish was what you ate when you fasted which is to say you're not eating. <laughs> which would make sense then why it wouldn't be something you had on a holiday. That's right. The holiday because it's about... about festivity and feasting. That's right. Yeah. When when was that, that meal, the seven fishes meal, served generally? When Christmas was... Eve. Christmas Eve. Of course. And you, you know why. Because Christmas you would be breaking the fast. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Advent is a period of fasting. Lots of fish eating. Um, so, sure. Then you go to Mass on Christmas Eve at midnight. Um, the fasting is over. You go home. And like the French Canadians, you have that wonderful tourtière, which is the ground pork and the potatoes mixed all with wonderful spices and baked into a pie. Right? And that breaks the fast. It's the first meat that you've eaten in probably a month.
That was food historian Sandy Oliver, and now food writer Nancy Harmon Jenkins on immigration, religion, and the Feast of the Seven Fishes. My ancestors settled in Salem and left as soon as they could, went to Falmouth, which is now Portland, and then came to South Thomaston. And my great, 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 great grandfather is buried in the Thorndike Cemetery in South Thomaston. Um, they were not religious people. They may not have celebrated Christmas the way we celebrate Christmas today, but we celebrate Christmas by going out and buying, spending mm -hmm. a lot of money. They celebrated Christmas by gathering together with the family in the beginning of winter, um, at the dark time of the year, and feasting. And they did that uh, in rebellion against the Puritans, really. If you read, because uh, there aren't any documents, but if you read any of the speculation about what went on in the Isles of Shoals, for instance, those were a bunch of renegades. I mean, the Puritans were in despair over the behavior of those fishermen out there because they were drinking and, uh, you know, carousing and celebrating and doing all kinds of things that, uh, that the Puritans wouldn't allow. The Puritans were a very short period, actually, um, and they were very localized. They, you know, they were right there in Massachusetts Bay. And once you got away from them, you could do anything you wanted to. You so, could have a maypole for the 1st of May, for instance. But, but go, going back to immigrant groups, I'm not sure. I really don't know. I don't feel, when I look at the history of food in Maine, that immigrant groups had, until very recently, a great deal of influence on the way we eat. When you look at... Um, early 20th century cookbooks, even up through the 1950s and into the 1960s, it's mostly good, traditional, old-fashioned, Anglo-New England fare. And it's not, um, there's very little impact from any Italians or French Canadians because these people, wrongly, obviously, look down on what they, I mean, my parents wouldn't eat garlic. They claimed that garlic upset their stomachs so badly they couldn't tolerate it. Well, there are all those Italians out there eating garlic, you know, and probably uh, because they go to confession once a week or once a month or whatever, they're able to tolerate garlic, but any normal, upstanding uh, resident of Maine would not be able to tolerate it. Um, and in the same way, the Feast of the Seven Fishes is a total, or nine fishes or 13 fishes, it's, a, it's kind of a made-up tradition, and it exists only among Italian-Americans. It does not exist in Italy at all. Italians eat fish on Christmas Eve because it used to be that the period of 40 days leading up to Christmas was like the period of 40 days leading up to Easter. It was a period of fasting. So, of course, you would fast on Christmas Eve. That would be your last meal uh, before you were able to break the fast and celebrate on Christmas Day. If you have just tuned in, that was food writer Nancy Harmon Jenkins talking with Maine Sea Grant science writer Catherine Schmidt about seafood traditions over the holidays. You are listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 FM in Bangor and online at WERU. And this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, your host, reminding you that this show has been pre-recorded and we're not taking calls at this time. Let's look next at seafood holiday menus as they are emerging today, and a little bit about how fish and shellfish became a luxury food. Let's go back again to Sandy Oliver first, followed again by Nancy Harmon Jenkins, as they talk with Catherine about their own family favorites and a little bit more about traditions evolving over time. So what do you think people, in terms of 20th century... How have we incorporated, have you seen Maine home cooks kind of incorporating seafood more during the holidays? Only to the extent that when seafood is a, a, a bit of a luxury, as oysters always are, as lobsters are now, um, you might want to have something, or shrimp, shrimp cocktail, or, um, you know, as part of the um, appetizer course. If you want to do that, or shrimp, you have to have shrimp cocktails at any kind of decent holiday uh, cocktail party, right? But they're <laughs> Still, not main shrimp. They're not main shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. Um, no, we just have to have shrimp as a 
another luxury shellfish. Um, and I do think that some people have serve oysters in an oyster stew or something of that sort. Possibly lobster as well. Uh, this our my family um, used to we used to eat oyster stew. Um, well, this was after I've left home. We never had my father just liked seafood, so we never had it at home when I was growing up. But once I got out of my childhood home, um, once I left my childhood home, <laughs> um, then I, I began to eat more seafood and really liked it a lot. And I often had oyster stew on Christmas Eve, um, very simply prepared, just, you know, bubbling, allowing the, the oysters to bubble to the little edges curled, you know, uh, grating in a little bit of nutmeg and then adding cream, and that was it. And what a lovely little supper that made. Um, and, and you were still hungry enough to eat a big meal the next day if you just only have this simple supper. Coming to Maine, um, it was just something about maybe living on the island and not going, not wanting to go to the mainland for any particular reason. Um, trying to avoid going to the mainland, in fact, where things are a little hectic at the last minute and, and coming up with your oysters. Well, I'm sure I could order them here, but we had lobster. And at the end of the season, when some of the lobster men are pulling their traps, it's a good time to acquire some lobster, um, cook it up, I freeze it in milk, and that's what Christmas. You freeze eat. it in milk. I freeze the picked out lobster in milk. Somebody told me to do that years ago, so I just did it. Do it. Um, and then on Christmas Eve, out comes the lobster. I warm it up just like I did the oysters. I warm it up in a little bit of butter. Well, actually, I like to do it the day before because if it sits overnight, it's better. So just put the put it in butter, add cream, put some sherry in it, nutmeg, just a little bit of nutmeg, and let it sit overnight, and that's that's a nice supper. That way, if we want to run down to the church to see the, the children's pageant, um, it's an easy, quick supper. It's already done. It's, it's easy to serve, not a lot of dishes. Christmas is um, more of a time to, to maybe do a little more fancy stuff for the dinner. So again, I want to wake up hungry on Christmas morning um, and I want to save all my culinary efforts for the next day. The lobster stew keeps it, keeps it simple the night before. That was food historian Sandy Oliver and now food writer Nancy Harmon Jenkins. The fact that we pay so much more for our seafood now. I mean, I just was quoting scallop um, prices with people, and I got everywhere from $35 a pound down to $18 a pound. And this is, I'm, I'm looking at people who are, who are shipping these out um, to consumers. So that's a huge discrepancy, but even $18 a pound seems like an awful lot of money. Um, but on the other hand, they're awfully good, and there's no waste there at all. You just eat the whole thing. So it's probably worth it, $35 a pound. Do you have certain seafood dishes that you cook? Do I have certain? What, what will you make? Will you, how will you incorporate seafood into your holidays? Well, I probably won't because I'll be spending it with my son and his wife, and they're vegetarians. Uh -huh. um, actually, my son is, eats fish. My daughter-in-law does not, and her children don't. So we're pretty restricted. At Thanksgiving, we had a beautiful swordfish that was caught off Nova Scotia. And uh, if I were going to serve fish, I would probably serve... Um, I would probably serve scallops because it's the right time of year for it. And I would serve them with a recipe from the cookbook that my daughter and I just published, a pasta recipe. What's for, the cookbook? It's called The Four Seasons of Pasta. And it has, uh, it begins with winter time. And one of the recipes in there is for scallops in a, um, I think it's a lemony cream sauce. I wonder if I've got a copy of that book here somewhere. Uh, winter, winter, winter. I put most of the seafood recipes toward the back, I think. 
We used to do shrimps, but can't do that anymore. Um, fettuccine with scallops in a lemony cream. And basically, um, the scallops are just seared. And then um, you stir in some uh, minced shallots. And then you add cream to the pan. And you add lemon zest and lemon juice and chervil to the sauce and you cook it just enough to thicken the sauce and then you use that to dress the pasta and the scallops all together. So wonderful. Yeah. 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 So I want to get back to the seven fishes thing because I'm part Sicilian. Ah. And I never, we never did that, and my family never did it. And yeah. my mother, I mean, we didn't have any seafood at um, over the holidays. It's suddenly a big and, thing and so that everybody's it, writing about. Where it, it came from, um, and I didn't know why. You know, if because my mother's family, if they didn't have access to the seafood, they moved slightly inland mm -hmm. um, to to New York State, and so they might not have been able to get the right. fish. But yeah. It, doesn't see there were a lot of other things they grew Italian vegetables that they held on to, and so I don't. It obviously wasn't a tradition. Yeah, I think it probably wasn't. And where did they come from in Sicily? Do you know? Uh, the town is called Juliana. Oh, which hmm. I think is interior. Interior, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah because you see, it, that's one reason why salt cod became so important because. There were lots and lots of communities throughout the Catholic world that didn't have access to fresh fish, and so they had to use salt cod if they wanted any kind of protein at all during these long fasting periods. So uh, Lent and, and Advent and Fridays and that sort of thing were all times when salt cod was very desirable. And so when you were in Italy, people weren't doing seven fishes? No, I never heard of it until I came here. There's been a lot of discussion this uh, about this on the internet recently because every you know Mario Batali is getting out there with his you know my family's seven fishes I think come on Mario your family never did seven fishes yeah. you're lucky if they got one yeah. <laughs> they probably did steak on the table well it's so much work it's yes exactly and you know you, presumably you're going to go to church on Christmas Eve you're going to come home and cook all of that right um, and you're not going to cook all of it before you go to church because maybe you're going to take communion you don't want to eat beforehand so uh so when are you supposed to prepare all of this what are you supposed to do mama stays home as usual right. and does the cooking um so what about um sort of you must interact a lot with home cooks who buy your cookbooks or mm -hmm. talking with people for your stories that you're writing um what do you sense? What are people cooking now? What are sort well, of the contemporary I think, um, holiday seafood? You know, I think that uh, that uh, um, fish chowder of Sam Haywood's is a very good example of uh, the kind of things that people around here eat for the holidays. But then you do get other influences in. And last week I went to a Mexican pop-up that a chef here named Sam uh, Richmond does. And he made a ceviche of fluke, locally caught fluke, and served it on top of a Mexican tostada, a crispy kind of tortilla sort of thing. It was so delicious. It was just wonderful. And I thought, this could be a first course in a Christmas dinner or a Christmas Eve dinner very easily because it's elegant and yet it's easy to prepare. You know, you marinate the fluke. I don't know how long he did, but um, you marinate it in something acid that will more or less cook it. And then you drain it out and you serve it with um, cilantro and green chilies and a squeeze of lemon juice, uh, not lemon juice, lime juice. And there you are, you know, you could do that before you go to church and have it when you come back, couldn't you? <laughs> um, what else, what kind of questions do you get well, yeah, I do get a lot of people, you know, there are an awful lot of people who just say, oh, I can't cook. I don't cook. Oh, fish is too difficult to cook. Well, I think fish is one of the easiest things in the world to cook. I think the problem is most people are under the impression that it's going to stink up their house somehow. 
And you just have to convince them that they haven't been buying very good fish if it's stinking up the house. They've got to pay more attention to the quality of what they're buying. And that's, uh, that's probably true of all kinds of food, not just seafood. But with seafood, it's particularly important, obviously, because seafood goes bad more quickly than a pork chop does or something like that. So, um, so really, where do you get your seafood? How do you get this beautiful fish? Well, you know, you find a fishmonger, and they're not a dime a dozen either. I go to Jess's in Rockland because I think they're just terrific and they're in very close touch with their fishermen too. Um, the other place I go to and I was just talking with them today is Port Clyde um, Seafood because they still do this, um, you know, they're going to drop off scallops and crab meat for me at McGunnycook Market up here on Friday. So I'll have them fresh practically off the boat and that's the best thing to do. It takes a little effort. Eating well takes effort. It doesn't take a lot of time and it doesn't take a lot of skill, but it takes effort. It does take some effort to get good, fresh seafood, as food writer Nancy Harmon Jenkins just explained. But fortunately for Maine consumers, fish markets are on the rise in Maine, including a new one in Bar Harbor, Piquito Provisions. I spoke with Piquito Provisions owners Drew Smith and Cindy Bridges recently about how they got started and there's a Christmas seafood story there, and also about the trend of consumers looking for local and sustainable seafood. I'm with Drew Smith at Piquito Provisions. So, Drew, tell us a little bit about the business that you and Cindy have started and what made you want to start this business and what it is. Well, at Piquito Provisions, we sell fresh seafood and sandwiches, lunches, that we use for the seafood we bring in and other ingredients. Um, not just seafood related for our lunch business, but main ingredients. Um, our impetus to start this was we went down to my parents for Christmas and we, we went to get some oysters at a local shop and we said, why can't we do this in Bar Harbor in the winter or for the most part in the summer even. You can't go just downtown and grab some seafood in a more local setting. So that's brought us to this. And it was at Christmas time. It was Christmas time because we wanted to get some oysters for the evening. That's great. And uh, how long ago did you open up? We've been here for a year in September, so year and three months now. Great, great. What did what are you um, what are people asking for this time of season? What uh, this buy? time of year, it seems the majority of things are, are salmon and uh, oysters and to take home. Kind of where we're at for what people are looking for for their Christmas stuff. And, and uh, you guys, I know, pay a lot of attention to carrying local stuff. Tell us a little bit about where you get, where your fish comes from, where your fish and shellfish comes from. Uh, we try to source it very locally. Uh, our shellfish all come from local fishermen. Our, uh, you know, our scallops as well, I guess counts as shellfish. Our other fish, for the most part, uh, try to keep one in season, and then uh, we source most of our uh, fin fish out of Harbor Fish out of Portland. We're very responsible, chemical-free, water-free in their treatment of fish. And do um, you find that yes. people um, look Daddy, more we are. for um, Daddy, stuff that you've made? I know that I've had a really amazing lobster, or no, it was a monk fish mac and cheese um, that you guys had pre-made, and it was delicious. So I'm just curious yeah. if people are looking for stuff that you guys pre-make, or, or if they want to cook fresh at home. A little bit of both. Um, we've been slowly growing that area of our business where people can just grab and go. Like you said, the monkfish mac and cheese is a popular item when we have that around. Um, our crab cakes, can't seem to keep them on the shelf because I've, people do like to come and grab a few for dinner and working towards having more of the prepared stuff available for people all the time to grab, but 
primarily see a lot of people just wanting to grab some fish and share some recipes with us. So. It's been a long time since we've had a fish market here in Bar Harbor. So you guys, you must be uh, filling a niche. We've found some people that are keeping us busy and are appreciative that we're here in the winter and uh, always discovering new people week to week, day to day, which is great. Great. Thanks. That's great. Cindy, anything you want to throw in? This is Cindy Bridges, who's one of the owners of the business. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people are reserving oysters ahead of time. Uh, a lot of people, we have several orders for salmon. Um, we have uh, just had some requests for things that we might and might not be able to get. Um, but our focus is really on sustainable, making sure that the fish we carry is sustainable. The phone call I was just having was about a woman who wanted Chilean sea bass, which is a big no-no because it creates a black market and then it creates more even less sustainability for that fish. One of the things that we try to educate our customers when they come in with those requests, we say, you don't want shrimp from Thailand, for instance, because it, there's a slave labor market for those kinds of things. Not to mention the lack of regulation in those countries, so that shrimp may be farmed in a really unsterile environment. Um, it could definitely make people sick but it's also about the labor practices those countries use to provide that food source um, that being said we carry laughing bird shrimp which is a sustainably farmed shrimp in Costa Rica it's a really cool corporation because they have several farms in throughout uh, Central America which provide um, new ecosystems for mangroves and birds that have been displaced from rainforest deforestation. So they're in process of farming the shrimp. They're creating new ecosystems, which is very cool. But those are the kinds of things that we've learned in doing this. Like, we don't want to carry <laughs> certain things, and we do want to focus on how to find sustainable food sources for people. That's great. And do you um, do you find that your customers that's they definitely appreciate the that? Yep, for sure. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so you're paying attention not exclusively to local, but just the larger sustainability right. yep. question. Is there anything else you guys think you want to add? Well, just the the first Thanksgiving and the first Christmases in New England were probably all seafood. Because lobsters were crawling all over the rocks at that point. Yeah. In history. So that's that's great. Great. Thanks, guys. Yeah. So that was Drew Smith and Cindy Bridges of Piquito Provisions in Bar Harbor, which, as a Bar Harbor resident, I'm happy to report will be open all winter. Seafood traditions are evolving in Maine, but traditions hardly ever stay frozen in time. New ones come, old ones go, and sometimes the new and the old merge. We thought we'd wrap up our show today with a newer fishy tradition. This one is not about consuming seafood, but about dropping it at New Year's Eve, much like the ball dropping in New York City to count down the last minutes of the year. Let's go to Eastport now and hear from Hugh French from the Tides Institute Museum of Art, interviewed by Chris Bartlett, a marine extension agent with Maine Sea Grant based in Eastport, as they talk about the great sardine and maple leaf drop. I'd like to talk with Hugh about uh, the creation of the New Year's Eve Great Sardine Drop. Um, the uh, New Year's Eve Sardine and, and Maple Leaf Drop uh, started in 2005, which is about three years after we began, and we purchased a building in the downtown of Eastport specifically to see if we could add to some revitalization of the downtown in this area. and. We're always looking for new ways of introducing um, things that can contribute to um, that sort of revitalization effort. And so we were thinking back in the summer of 2005 what we might do to add to the mix. And we thought about doing something on New Year's Eve. And we said, well, um, we sure as hell don't want to do a, a crystal ball. We said New York's going over that. And 
we weren't sure whether it would work or not. I mean, um, you know, traditionally here, um, New Year's Eve was absolutely dead. There might have been the Wacko Diner that stayed open until maybe seven, and then that was it. There wasn't, you know, a car or a person on the street at midnight. So we said, well, what if we did a sardine, knowing that Eastport, at least at one point, was kind of the sardine capital of the world, and we said, that sounds a little quirky and a little different that maybe could gain some traction and then we said well what if we since there's this is a border area and there's a time change uh border as well not only a political border we said well why don't we do two drops and do um a something with the canadians um and then we thought about what we might do for, to represent the canadians and we said well why don't we do a maple leaf so the idea became to drop a artist-created maple leaf at midnight Atlantic time and then do a artist-created sardine at midnight Eastern time. And so uh, we had someone create those, um, and we sort of rigged up a, a less than stellar uh, setup on the roof of our building, got the word out, um, and it went off pretty well. Um, I don't know how many people we actually had that first year, but we had probably a couple hundred or so, and we might have had a couple of businesses open through midnight, which was good for us. Um, we purposely, right from the beginning, wanted to keep it very low budget uh, because we knew if there was a blizzard or anything, we'd lose our shirt if we had any real money, um, and we, we kept everything very decentralized, and so ever, whoever participated or wanted to participate like an organization or a business or whatever we would just go to them and say what are you doing and we would sort of stitch together the schedule and try to promote it but we wouldn't do any of those sort of overall organizing um, so we really made it decentralized from the beginning and it's sort of grown over the years um, um, you know where you had a sort of a darkened downtown uh, now it's uh, full of life and so it's grown from you know, a couple of businesses to maybe, you know, 10 businesses, and the Arts Center usually does a play, um, and that's part of it. Um, you know, occasionally there's some fireworks that are set off that we are not part of, um, uh, but that's contributed to, and it's it's gained some traction. Um, you know, it's, it's in a in a different way than, let's say, the uh, nothing against Bangor or anything, but, you know, uh, throwing a beach ball off a lawyer's office just isn't going to get any traction outside of Bangor. Um, and so, you know, we've had the event picked up on the front page of the Boston Globe, and CNN has picked up on it, and Ofer's magazine, you know, I think a year or two ago said it was one of the six quirkiest New Year's Eve drops in the country. And so, uh, you know, anytime you can sort of come up with something that... Um, can overcome some of the you know challenges here, whether it be lack of population or distances from places and whatever. I mean that's that's what you always have to look for, and that's where that's where I think ideas come into play, and and we're sort of big on ideas um, because that's where a place like this can um, get some publicity that otherwise it it wouldn't get. So. So. It wasn't due to any prompting of ours, but there have been additions made to the event over the years, and one of them has been kind of a tradition of people kissing the sardine after it makes its descent from our, the top of our building, and um, people will line up and have the opportunity to kiss the fish. And I remember one year in particular where there was this police car that uh, pulled up alongside the uh, front of our building just after the sardine had had dropped and the officer ran out uh, of his uh, police car and ran over to the sardine, kissed the sardine, and then got back into his police car and drove off. So um, it's those sort of things. That was Hugh French from the Tides Institute Museum of Art in Eastport. If you can make it to Eastport this New Year's Eve, it's bound to be a great evening. But alas, we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about holiday seafood traditions in Maine. For more information about our guests and for some great holiday seafood recipes, both old and new, visit the Coastal Conversations page on the Maine Sea Grant website, seagrant.umaine.edu. Thanks to our guests for their time and great stories, Sandy Oliver of Islesboro, Nancy Harmon Jenkins of Camden, Peaky Toe Provisions in Bar Harbor, and Hugh French of Eastport. 
Thanks also to Sea Grant Extension Associate Chris Bartlett and science writer Catherine Schmidt for helping compile this show on Maine's holiday seafood traditions. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.